had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. Welcome to Go Ask Alley, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Don't think that there's some one soulmate. It's not like there's one. Although Bon Jovi is my soulmate. <laughs> there's always exceptions. Are you saying that gossiping is the same as if I'm picking lice out of your scalp and eating it? Well, you've done both. So what do you think? I don't want to give her too much. I don't like her to come in with an inflated head. So we won't mention the Golden Globe. After all we've been through, we deserve an orgasm, sis. We deserve... I know. (laughs) Welcome to Go Ask Allie. I'm Allie Wentworth. This season, I'm digging into everything I can get my hands on, peeling back the layers and getting dirty. Today's excavation is a psychology of money. So last season on Go Ask Allie, Jamila Souffrant was talking to me about the real nuts and bolts of finances and a legacy book. And this season, we got a question from Erica, who asked me, did I actually do a legacy journal? And Erica, I did. I put a whole book together so that I know where our money is at all times. I even have a copy of our will. And I'm telling you, it gave me so much security, not so much, you know, that I have this legacy book, but that I know where our money is and I understand it. And I actually have something tangible to give to my daughters, or God forbid, if something happens to us, they have it all in one book. And so I implore you, do a legacy book, make a legacy journal. It's so helpful. The psychology of money is fascinating to me because it tells us what kind of a person we are. And what I mean by that is, are you a big spender? Are you cheap? 
Do you hold on to the coin tightly? All these things stem to how we are made up emotionally. Money comes with some baggage, and Amanda Clayman is going to help us unpack it. Amanda Clayman is a financial therapist who specializes in the cognitive, emotional, and behavioral aspects of our financial well-being. Amanda runs seminars and workshops around the country, and her work has been featured in major media outlets like The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal, and she's appeared on MSNBC, Fox, and so much more. She's a featured therapist working with couples on Death, Sex, and Money's financial therapy series, and you can read her blog at amandaclayman.com. Amanda Clayman, thank you so much for being a Go Ask Alley, and fasten your seatbelts because I have a lot of questions. I'm excited. Thank you for having me. I'm truly somebody that this is a very scary terrain for me to walk through because I have issues with money and I think I come from a family with issues of money. This is not going to be a podcast where we're going to tell you how to get rich or any of that. We are talking about all our kind of different psychological pieces. So that's why I'm excited to dive in. So, okay, Ali, shut up. Let me ask Amanda a question. Can you start with your story about how you kind of blew up your financial life, your infamous $19,000 haircut? Yes. And this is a, also a great story I, I feel about mothers and daughters, which is I moved to New York City with a dream and an empty bank account and really just thought I'm going to throw myself at the world and kind of figure it out. And I did, but it turns out there are a lot of financial consequences to throwing yourself at the world with an empty bank account. (laughs) And New York City, too. In New York City. Yes. And so I was doing certain things. I was always trying to figure out the problem in front of me. So, for example, like I use those checks that come with your credit card statement to pay for the security deposit on my first apartment and broker's fee because I didn't know to expect those. I was very naive. Mm, mm-hmm. And that really just started a snowball of credit card debt that I did not have the means at that point to pay off. And I got very anxious about the situation. I started doing other things like avoiding really sitting down and, and looking at how much money was in my bank account and then paying my bills. I just, I was so emotional and overwhelmed and avoidant that not only were there external financial challenges, but I was creating even more problems for myself with how I was managing my behavior around money. Cut to a few years into this kind of a a situation, and my mom had come to visit me in New York, and I asked her to give me a haircut, which was weird. She hadn't given me a haircut since I was probably seven years old, but she gave me one of the worst haircuts that we've ever seen in time, (laughs) although it's probably very fashionable today, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. But she gave me this awful haircut and I burst into tears and she was like, don't panic. It's okay. We'll call your hairstylist and and we'll tell her it's an emergency. And I said, I can't do that. I bounced a check there and, and I can't go back. And that was just kind of the beginning of the truth coming out, which was that my financial life was just in shambles. Wow. Yeah. So you bounced a check at the hair salon. Yes. With the idea that if you didn't go back, you would never actually have to deal with it or pay for it. I don't think that there was thinking behind it. There was no Mm. plan. It was always just like, here's the emergency or the highest priority thing that I'm just trying to deal with. And then I'll figure out emergency number two, which is waiting in the wings for me to sort out emergency number one. Um, Right. 
And that, honestly, I I feel like that experience in particular gives me a lot of empathy mm-hmm. with clients when when other people find certain financial mistakes. Um, or problems to be just so baffling. Like, don't you know that you're making it harder for yourself? It's like, I knew that I was making it harder for myself. I just didn't know how to do anything differently. I had no idea how to begin. And the important thing about this terrible haircut is that I was finally talking about the problem. And my mother, whom I expected to just be like disgusted and horrified, was actually really just, I mean, she was shocked, but she was very matter of fact about like, here are the things that you need to know. Mm -hmm. Like, it doesn't have to be this hard. She had a, a very practical kind of approach to it. And that I know now as a clinician, like that was an opportunity where I really needed to be reparented. Mm -hmm. Like I had picked up all of these kind of accidental financial lessons Mm -hmm. as I was growing up. Like I had really taken on a lot of my parents' anxiety about money, which led to some of my avoidance. Mm -hmm. And what I needed was a way to sort of balance out the very real problems that I was anxious about with the skills and the tools to be able to approach them and to learn how to manage them. Mm-hmm. So so it felt like such an awful crisis, but it was helpful. Right. I think it's so interesting to think about all the family dynamics because I grew up in a family where you didn't talk about money. I don't know why, but it was always like, it's crass. Let's not talk about it. And my feeling was, it's a little bit like sex. You know, we don't talk about sex. Well, then I'm not going to learn anything. And what I do learn is probably not going to be accurate. Mm-hmm. So I too had uh, a time in my life where I bounced checks because nobody taught me about it, you know? Right. And I also saw that particularly with my female friends, they, this is such a antiquated idea, but it still exists where my married friends would say, oh, I'm going to let my partner deal with it because I'm just not good with it. So my partner will control it. And a lot of stuff happens, Mm -hmm. as you know, with a couple when somebody's controlling money. Yes. Um, That's not two people sitting down as adults and saying, why don't you take care of the money and I'll do the gardening? There's a reason that we relinquish our financial power. And as a clinician, that's what I find the most interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I I have a particular agenda and I want my clients all to be wealthy. I actually find it's so fascinating how much meaning we project onto our decisions about how we approach our financial life. Like this is the stuff of life. This is how we we can right. sort of identify opportunities for personal growth. Like even if you do have a spouse who's managing the money well and there's no quote unquote money problem, you I I would say might still be feeling like you are kept almost childlike in that dynamic. You are infantilized. Yes. Yes. You know, look, I not everybody needs to have the same life journey here, but that may be a place where for you to feel like you are standing fully in your own capacities, that that's a dynamic that needs to be addressed. Right. I mean, I knew early on in my marriage, it was never going to work for me to, quote unquote, ask permission to purchase something when I was also making my own living. Like I I just thought, I don't want to get into a situation where you're the parent that I have to go to and say, 
I, I'd like to get this. Also, as an adult, I had a close friend, have a close friend who was married for a long time. He ended up being uh, a drug addict and there were all kinds of problems that came up. And I said to her, you know, he has an addiction, so you need to go through your finances. Have you been monitoring? And she said, no, he controls the money. He always has. And so this to me was such an extreme story, but such a wake-up call for her and for all of us that that know her because she had no idea where the money was, how it was being spent. She had no access to it. And he had been using it not only for his addiction, but he had been funneling it into secret accounts. You know, it's just, it was like a lifetime movie. Mm -hmm. And you do a lot of, of therapy with couples, right? Having to deal with sort of money that has come in sort of through a psychological tributary, I guess. Yes. And I love to embrace our financial lives as an opportunity for us to really build intimacy. Like Mm -hmm. money has this wonderful quality in that it's both a symbol and a tool. So like something's going to go show up in your life as some kind of a money problem or some sort of a, a recurring fight that you have with your spouse. And if we sort of deconstruct the the meaning pieces or the relationship piece, then we can often use money to really set up a new structure mm-hmm. that promotes healthy communication, that promotes equal decision-making or transparency, or there are all these kind of wonderful, juicy things that we can add in using money as a vehicle toward better health and wellness and quality of our relationship. You use CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. when you deal with finances, which I love because, you know, as you said, all financial behavior has meaning. Have you been able to kind of use those CBT tools to pull individuals and couples out of kind of financial crisis? Yeah, because one of the great strengths of CBT is, is it it allows us to get really specific. Like we're identifying these beliefs that we have or stories that we tell. So much of money are the stories that we tell. Mm -hmm. I was just having a conversation with a couple about like a a decision that one partner had made without discussing it with the other partner. And even though there was nothing bad had happened, it still felt like a real breach of trust. And it was a, a husband and wife couple in this case the wife felt very personally betrayed, again, even though no money had been lost. And so we go back and we we sort of look at the stories that we're telling ourselves about what has happened. And one of those stories could be, this was his money, you know, in the way that the couple had their money organized. This was his money. He did not have to discuss this in any way. You couldn't point to a transgression or an injury that this behavior had caused. Mm-hmm. And yet, it still was coming up as a relationship issue. So obviously we need to look at what is the story that the wife is telling herself about what has happened? Like, where is the rupture if she is unable to kind of articulate it? And that's what the work is. And we know that there is a story there because she's having this feeling. CBT helps us kind of like dig underneath and then look at the structural side and say, okay, do we need an agreement moving forward that decisions above this amount of money need to be discussed? Or do we need a system where we talk about everything once a month, et cetera? There are lots of ways that we can play with that. You know, I think about the horrible things that have happened to people during COVID, both, you know, obviously health-wise, but also financially. And I know that married couples have been struggling because 
a lot of them, for whatever reasons, their relationship imploded and they can't afford to get divorced. What's your therapeutic advice for people that can't get divorced right now because they literally can't afford it? I I have a lot of compassion first and foremost. Like mm-hmm. yeah. what we're doing in that situation is is we're having to tolerate a painful feeling and a painful situation that it's just not available to us to resolve it right now. So we can't move forward. We need to look at what are the strategies that we can identify that are going to help us be able to stay functional and stay together and still do all of the other things we need to do, like have peace in the home to be able to co-parent if there are children, et cetera. And so that becomes a negotiation. And and sometimes it's funny, like I've seen that couples who are in the process of trying to split resolve things in the split because they have to be kind of negotiated and there's no way to avoid it. That probably could have really helped the relationship if that had happened. Right. But that's just kind of not the journey that this particular couple is on. So we, we just try to have the best split that we can while understanding that a lot of stuff that's legacy from where this relationship fell apart is going to be one of the things that's hard to talk about as we negotiate this peaceful split. Right. And it's time for a short break. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. (sighs) Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. 
Okay, let's get back to it. I read many of your blogs, which were so fascinating, but you talk a lot about shame when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. And you certainly describe that a little bit with your haircut story. Mm -hmm. I think everybody has a money shame story. I just, I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm. And I think about when you have this shame, it's important, whether it's just you or in a couple situation to have vulnerability about it. Yeah. Shame is is really tough. Yeah. I think it can help if we have an understanding of of the purpose of shame. Because shame just feels like our experience of it. It's almost like like I almost picture like hot tar just dripping. Like it, it wants to stick to you and it's mm-hmm. it's dirty and oh, so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But shame is a social emotion. And what I mean by that is that that humans are programmed to experience shame because shame is what protects us from being kicked out of the tribe, so to speak. So it's something that says, ooh, if I continue with this thing that is bad, it's going to mean that I get rejected. It's going to jeopardize my relationships. And, you know, once upon a time, that literally meant our survival if we got kicked out of the tribe. So shame is is very deeply wired into our psyche. Right. And shame is also one of the first things, especially with money, that is a form of like a way to put the brakes on the engine of our needs and wants, which are kind of always running. Mm-hmm. So shame is the thing that says like, ooh, I can't ask my parents for that because they're going to get mad at me. Or I'm being greedy if I ask for that. And there are different ways that we can sort of like parent around that, like saying our financial values are X, Y, Z, and that's where our money goes. You know, So it doesn't necessarily shame the asker, but we are going to pick up a lot of shame. Like when you were describing earlier how you didn't talk about money in your family, right? you were still, I'm sure, receiving lots of messages about money, even though none of those messages were explicit. And therefore you couldn't ask questions and you couldn't get clarification. And you know, you're just in this sort of emotional world. In that emotional world, I'm sure there was a lot of shame about what we don't do or what we do yes. with money. Yes. And so like, instead of taking in that badness and identifying with that badness and feeling like I am really bad because you know what? I am greedy and I really do want these new sneakers to be able to say like, okay, once upon a time when I was learning about the world, I received messages that said it wasn't okay for me to want this or ask for it. But now I'm a grown up. And I have the opportunity to look at some of these feelings, which happen automatically. I can look at these feelings with a little bit of critical distance in a new light and figure out if that shame is something that I want to work on letting go of, or maybe I I feel like that shame still sort of helps keep me safe. Right. You're probably going to think I'm crazy, but there's a feeling I have with money that I equate with my relationship with food. Now, I have a healthy relationship with food. I don't have any eating disorders. But there's a similar feeling, certainly when I was younger, which was, oh, I can't really afford that pair of boots, but I just don't care. I'll figure it out later. You know, I'm willing to bounce a check. I want those boots. Mm -hmm. There's a similar thing when you're feeling physically healthy. You know, you've, you've walked 10 miles, you had this big salad for lunch and you're feeling good. And you suddenly think, I want a pint of ice cream. Mm -hmm. I don't care if it's not in the diet and I don't care if I'm going to feel shitty afterwards. Mm -hmm. For me, it's a very, it's a very similar feeling. Totally. Does that make sense? A thousand percent. Of of course we want without consequences. Like, because we want, 
we want. And I really feel like like being in touch with our needs and wants is like the key to happiness, honestly, because we live in a complex world and we have all of these ways to kind of interpret things. And sometimes what we need is like, we kind of need the universe to have our back a little bit. Like I have spent all of this energy being virtuous and exercising discipline and doing all of the things that I'm supposed to do. And you know what? I kind of feel done. We feel like we need something from the outside world to fill us back up. And that can be boots. That can be ice cream. It's funny. One thing that I have learned is if you don't want to have boots or ice cream, like do something kind of benignly antisocial, like jump in the shower with your clothes on. Oh, I know it sounds bizarre, right? Like, No, I like it. <laughs> like, I do. What we want to do on a psychological level is kind of rebel and break free. That's one of the ways that we can interpret that and try to meet that need in a different way. Sometimes, and my husband thinks I am literally a monster about this, but I have started in my own household, and I, I use this with clients too, saying, I would like praise. I walk 10 miles. I would like praise. So funny. I, I do a version of that, which is mm-hmm. I speak for my husband. So mm. if we're going out and I walk in the room and he doesn't say anything, I say, oh, my God, honey, you look so amazing. I don't even want to go out. I just want to <laughs> stay home with you. And he laughs and we carry on. But I, I mean, I can write a better dialogue for him than I can probably get for him. So I just do it myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we learn I think especially as we get older and we mature and we figure ourselves out and there's some freedom that comes with like just getting tired of judging ourselves for some of these things. And so we find a workaround, whether it's writing your husband's dialogue or whether it's it's asking really directly, like we can kind of figure out strategies for making ourselves happy and and getting our needs met. And I would say no matter what the socioeconomic background is. I mean, you quote Oscar Wilde when he said, the only thing that can console one for being poor is extravagance. And there's a little bit of that in there, of this Mm -hmm. idea that for whatever reason I can't have, but I must, must, must have it. Yes. There's something that it's so beautifully affirming about that. Mm -hmm. It's a way of sort of expressing this existential planting a flag in the ground and saying, I am here. The world would want to say that I can't do this or I can't have this. And and even though it doesn't make sense for my bank account, like that I think is often the need that sort of drives those behaviors that people look askance and say like, but don't they know that they're messing up their life even further? It's like sometimes what we need is to say, life isn't going to beat me. I can still have fun or I can still do this. If we look underneath the behavior, there's so much there and that always makes sense if we know how to look at it. You know, I also look at money and I see how it gets weaponized as well. And I mean weaponized emotionally because I see money, great amounts and little amounts can destroy families because of the emotional undercurrent of all of it. and. I sometimes think that people are so obsessed with shows like Succession or Billions because the money is used emotionally in these TV shows. But also, I think people want to see people with a lot of money being horrible people. (laughs) You know what I mean? There's something very satisfying about that. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, money is an energy source and it can fuel whatever you put it toward. And when you're putting it towards something dysfunctional, yeah, it can create a a big dramatic mess. I mean, there's tremendous 
destructive power that can come with having a lot of money. And one thing that you can say, you know, if you're not fighting over money, because you don't have that kind of money, then those kinds of problems are problems that you don't have. And it makes a life of not having those problems seem more attractive mm-hmm. and, and dearer to us. I always love that saying, though, that if you threw all of your problems onto a pile with everybody else's problems, you'd be so excited to snatch your own problems back. <laughs> and I, I think looking at those kinds of shows does give us that kind of an opportunity to be like, oh, I'm glad I don't have those problems. I mean, do you sort of look at our country right now because there is such a polarization of wealth? People are so angry right now. And a lot of it is, I think, the divide of the haves and the have-nots. Don't you see that connection as being what is imploding so many issues in our country right now? I do. And I I love that you asked that question because – you know, when we get into the psychology of money, the first thing that we discover is it's it's never just about the dollars and cents. And one of the ways that we create meaning around money is using comparisons. I forget who did this study, but there's some research that found that if you offer people, you say, I could give you $150,000, but all of your neighbors have $200,000. Or I could give you $100,000, but all of your neighbors have $75,000. The vast, vast majority of people would take less money as long as they have more money relative to other people. So when we see a huge amount of income disparity and the trend of income disparity even increasing over time, the part of our brain that deals with loss and loss of status really lights up. And human beings are much more aversive to loss than we are conditioned to seek gain. So like our brains are just panicking. They're in panic mode as we we sort of see how much harder it is to have a secure middle class existence and all of the institutions that really make being in the middle class work, like having access to great schools and clean water and good transportation, et cetera. Like as those things go away, not only is is the story that we tell ourselves one where we are being unfairly targeted and oppressed and losing status, but we very much feel like, how am I going to make sure that my family's needs are met? And then you can spiral into shame, you know, and then make probably make bad choices. Yes. Yeah. I do feel that in our country right now a lot. And I mean, from every community, you know, this feeling of fear and what's unfortunately come about is this real anger. Yeah. I mean, anger is the protective emotion. You know, it's it's there to say, hey, this is getting really close to a boundary and I don't like it and I need you to back off. Mm-hmm. And underneath that anger is something that's much more tender. And a lot of times it is vulnerability. It is grief. But because it is so hard to stay in those vulnerable feelings, we stay in the anger. But the anger especially if there's anger on the other side, it's like we just can't ever get to a place where we feel connected, where we have any sense of of trust that people are there to support us. And we don't have any faith that things are going to get better. So, so I do think that there's a real crisis of anger. And to the point about shame and families, like I remember the great St. Brene Brown saying about shame that the quickest route to shame is unwanted identity. When we feel like who we are is being devalued or losing status, 
in our, our social group or in our society, that is where we're going to experience shame. And then again, go right into the anger to try to distance ourselves and protect ourselves from that feeling of shame. And in families, especially, this can lead to certain messages that go into how we talk about money in the family or socioeconomic status. And like family money stories are are really meant to give the next generation to set them up for what they should expect to see in the world. So if what you're teaching your child is that they should expect to see that the world is against them, that somebody is trying to keep them down. The intention is that that's going to be protective. So the child knows like, hey, you got to get in there and fight. On the other hand, that might also, because of the confirmation bias, set the child up to just only see that when they get out into the world. And maybe there are helpers, maybe there are solutions, but those kinds of opportunities or resources, if we're on the defensive, then we're not going to notice them. Or similarly in a family that says there is privilege and you need to make sure that you're one of the people who has it. Don't worry about anybody else. The world is tough. You got to get yours. Like that is sort of inoculating that person to distance themselves from the shame of the inequality mm-hmm. and feeling that disconnect or maybe even feeling like they're taking advantage. So so how we sort of interpret these social events or socioeconomic events and try to raise our children to understand the system that they're born in, sometimes what we're doing is sort of unwittingly perpetuating the very system that we're finding difficult. Right. And we'll be right back. to pickup truck bed chaos meet decked game-changing usa made full bed length drawers for tools and gear waterproof dustproof lockable secure whether you're working hunting fishing camping or just getting out of town and introducing decked deco cases tough modular problem-solving cases built for the truck job site campsite or garage say goodbye to random bins and tie downs order now at deck.com slash iheart for free shipping decked your truck your rules deck.com forward slash iheart There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. 
right, let's get back to it. My fear is with how our country has set up payment. And what I mean by that is with Apple Pay and Venmo and everything, are our children losing or getting a disconnect from the idea of money and budget and understanding the gravity of money? Does that make sense to you? Yes. When we forfeit awareness, because awareness makes us uncomfortable, we're sacrificing the ability to be deliberate with our money and to really say, these are my financial values. I'm going to use the feedback of like seeing where my money goes and and I can tolerate the feelings of that in order to say, I'm putting my money toward the things that are most important to me. And I deal with a lot of this because there's an incentive in the financial services world to, under the guise of making things easy and taking away friction in our ability to to enact a financial transaction, that we are robbing ourselves of the ability to really be conscious and grounded and use the knowledge that we have about the reality of our money in order to guide our decisions. Like we're really just putting ourselves into this very ephemeral kind of rule of thumb behavior where like, Mm -hmm. if I'm naturally frugal, if I have my brain setting automatically on no, unless, you know, I really give it some time and make it a yes, but automatically I'm going to say no, that's a way of keeping us safe financially, but it's also a way of keeping our, our needs and wants really small and not interacting with them because of that automatic no setting. If Rather, we have it set to maybe, and then we take away all of that friction and all of those opportunities to reflect, to go, ooh, maybe I shouldn't, maybe there's an alternative, where else would I rather put my money if I'm paying attention to it, then we really are subject to the whim of the moment. If we're hungry, then we're going to get the $10 or $20 salad. If we are tired, then we're going to take a rideshare home Mm -hmm. instead of taking public transportation, et cetera. Like we need those feelings that kind of pump the brakes. And there will always be, I tell clients this all the time, there will always be more needs and wants than there are resources. Right. So let's kind of make friends with what all of these emotions have to offer us. So is this kind of financial radical acceptance? It is. It is. Radical acceptance... But one of the things that you're accepting is the wisdom of the brain and the body and the partnership between the emotions and the subconscious and the meaning and the stories with just the kind of boots on the ground reality of like, this is how dollars come into my life and this is how dollars come out of my life. Mm -hmm. So money can be your focus to have a deeply personally meaningful and purpose-driven life. And it doesn't mean that by having this focus on money that you're just trying to hoard all the money. That's not it at all. It's just being deliberate with all of these dollars about how you operate in this money world. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. How, How does our relationship with money change over the course of our lifetime? So as we grow and mature, we express our developmental tasks and phases very much in terms of the kinds of choices that we're making with money. So one rule of thumb, I think, for a happy life is not to judge the previous developmental phase by the one that you're currently in. So if, for example, 
you happen to be a 24-year-old named Amanda who got a lot of credit card debt (laughs) because she wrote herself checks and put them into her bank account. 24-year-old Amanda's developmental task was establishing independence, figuring out who she was professionally, personally, having friendships, like figuring out where does one get a couch and all of these other sort of grown-up tasks. Um, And then 35-year-old Amanda, who is partnered and thinking about a family and saving for the long term, like it would be possible to be very judgmental of all of the mistakes and the learning that that younger Amanda had to go through. But that was what all of that work accumulated along with the financial consequences of figuring it out, the learning accumulated such that, you know, I'll switch back to first person. Like I knew who I was at 35 because I had gone through all of that stuff at 25. So suddenly what I'm trying to do with my money and the things that I'm trying to figure out and the lessons I'm trying to learn, those are different in those two different time periods. And now as somebody who's in her mid forties, I am so much more into like, having the perspective of a life's journey. And it becomes much more reflective and thinking about impact kinds of things. Mm -hmm. This is much more, I think, developmentally appropriate to where I'm at at this point in my life. So in working with people, one of the things that I'm listening for is sort of like, what are the lessons that are in their life right now? Where do they see the value? And where do they see the mistakes or the sacrifices based on what they learned in an earlier phase of adulthood or even what they were learning in their family when they were growing up? Which hopefully they're doing simultaneously with looking at their life in general. You know, if you're in therapy, One could, I, I could look at my life and, and think, well, my, you know, my frontal lobe wasn't developed when I was a teenager and I was doing all kinds of crazy stuff because I felt invincible. And so I didn't manage my money that well. I was sort of free falling in all areas. And then in my twenties, there were still bouncing of checks because they were still bouncing of relationships and bouncing of ideas of what to do. And so the money stuff does track with your own personal emotional journey in general through your lifetime, I think. I find this all fascinating because I think there's so much correlation between what's going on with you as a person trying to be self-actualized as it is with your finances. Yes. So my sort of like research fascination right now is all around needing and wanting and how we we think of those distinctions as categories in our financial life, certainly. But like, if you've seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, there's a big triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle, it starts with like physiological needs, like when we're hungry or or tired, and that we have safety, etc. And then at the top, you have self-actualization. And so I, I like to look at that as like, that is an arrow. Like, it's not like we get to the top and we have no needs. It's like, no, needs are, needs and wants are the the story of how you live your life in a human body in this crazy, complex modern society. And and our needs and our wants help point us toward our purpose that we're going to have on this journey. And that allows me to relate, I think, and I hope, in a healthy way to needing and wanting, which can be really scary. But it also, I think, provides a lot of, of hope. Oh God. I okay. I'm gonna end on this because it um <laughs> it's funny because I've always been so afraid of money and having read a lot of the things that you've written and speaking to you today, I feel the kind of a sense of relief, you know, because 
so much of it was connected to emotions that I didn't, I didn't sort of dig into before. So thank you. You've certainly answered a lot of my big questions about finances. And so if you have a question for me, I'd love to answer it for you. I do. So bring it, Amanda. (laughs) (laughs) So I also have two daughters and mine are just a little younger than yours, but kind of right behind you. And I don't know if this is true for you as a parent, but my two kids have very different personalities. And I wonder in your approach to parenting, do you find that you knowingly parent your two children differently? Or do you try to have a really consistent sort of like, this is the way I parent, this is what I'm trying to impart to you? That's a great question. Big sort of fundamental moral structure ways, I parent them the same way in terms of like, this is what we do, this is what we believe, you know, Mm -hmm. we always have family dinner at six, I don't care if you're social. So those things, I parent both of them the same way. Now, as they've gotten older, I, I have a tendency to tailor my parenting towards each girl because their needs are different. You know, mm-hmm. one of them is just emotionally much more needy. So I have to sort of be there for her. The other one is a lot more independent, doesn't want me cuddling and giving her good mother messages. So as they get older, you start to understand what their needs are and how you can help. And now that they're full-blown teenagers, it's very clear to me what they both need. And now it's, I don't have to think a lot about it. I know, well, this one, you know, this one, I'm not even allowed to ask who was at the party. And (laughs) this one is, I know I got to put an hour and a half aside because she's going to go through, you know, every single detail of meeting this boy. So it it evolves and changes all the time. But again, to, to bring it back, what I first said, as long as I've instilled in them sort of our collective familial morality and big lessons and stuff, then the rest I can sort of figure out as we go along. Mm -hmm. I love that. I hope that's helpful. (laughs) And by the way, it's a work in progress till the very end. So, you know, God knows what I'll be like as a grandmother. (laughs) Amanda, thank you so much. And again, I'm sort of obsessed right now with this connection of, of therapy and finances. It was but a nibble. I feel like there's a full meal in our future. So thank you. I would so be delighted to come back. Thank you. I had a great time talking to you. So I was thinking a lot about shame based on what Amanda was saying. And I was thinking about how in my mm, 20s, I was sort of a delinquent financially. And then I sort of got my act together in my early 30s. But when I met my husband, and it was very, very hard to divulge this, I was in credit card debt and I had to borrow money from him to pay off this debt. Now, it wasn't such a huge debt that he ran away from the relationship screaming. But, you know, it was humiliating to ask him to bail me out. And that was a big moment for me. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm now in a partnership where I don't want to be irresponsible. Um, And we sort of, thankfully, got together and had real conversations about how we react about money based on our own emotional makeup and how we were going to move forward and not let money become a lot of baggage and fighting. And so um, I'm grateful for that. And I also think that for all of us listening, if we can somehow understand how we deal with money based on our own emotional makeup, it's really going to free us. 
It's not going to make us richer, but it's definitely going to free us. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Allie. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and follow me on social media on Twitter at Allie E. Wentworth and on Instagram at The Real Allie Wentworth. And if you have questions or guest suggestions, I'd love to hear from you. Call or text me at 323-364-6356 or email Podcast at gmail.com. Go Ask Allie is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of pickup truck bed chaos? Meet Decked, game-changing USA-made full bed-length drawers for tools and gear. Waterproof, dustproof, lockable, secure. Whether you're working, hunting, fishing, camping, or just getting out of town. And introducing Decked Deco cases. Tough, modular, problem-solving cases built for the truck, job site, campsite, or garage. Say goodbye to random bins and tie-downs. Order now at Decked.com slash iHeart for free shipping. Decked, your truck, your rules. Decked.com forward slash iHeart. There are choices that can change your life. Like the choice to start routine colorectal cancer screening at age 45. It's one of the most common cancers for women and men, and it doesn't always have symptoms. But there's good news. Routine screening can catch colorectal cancer early and even prevent it. And there's even better news. You have screening options. Make the choice to put your health first. Talk to your doctor about your screening options. Or visit cdc.gov slash screenforlife for more information. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.